Missing jewels, a secret gun, a shattered vase. After the ladies are robbed post a Madonna show, they each experience the trauma differently. From being scared by a security salesman to being chased in a parking lot, this is a stressful episode. So grab your mink stole and hold on tight as we learn the outcome of Blanche's jewels and talk with Amy from Simply Safe to learn about how to really feel secure in your home with or without a system. The break-in has always felt out of order for me, that it has the look and vibe of being one of the very first episodes, but it got bumped to number eight. I'm not quite sure. Coco, I know you were feeling the same way with it when we watched it. It's something about the direction, the mm-hmm. camera movements. Just, just the, uh, there's a weird part, I think you'll, you'll probably address it. There's like a, a, a zoom or a dolly in to one of the characters. It's very weird. It's just it's off-putting, and it like that. That was kind of my 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 theory as we were watching it is that maybe they pushed that episode so that you'd already have a lot invested people invested in the show, so they could kind of forgive some uh, visual weirdness. Yeah, like maybe they had other directors that gave it more the feel that they really wanted, and then they're like, "Well, we don't want this show to be like the Paul Bogart show." <laughs> But we are back with Paul Bogart. That's part of why I think it feels that way. He's directing again. I discussed him a little bit in the transplant episode. Here he's more reined in, but he's definitely using the space more different than what we've come to expect. The opening shot is at the ocean, which I don't believe we ever see again in the series. And in the job hunting episode and guess who's coming to the wedding episodes that he also directed, we get a lot of awkward pans and zooms and all sorts of shots. I think Paul's extensive background maybe explains why the setting of Golden Girls didn't exactly jive with his style. He actually started directing in 1953, going on to shows like Get Smart and The Danny Thomas Hour and All in the Family. So maybe because he was coming up through Hollywood as it was changing and growing and, you know, getting its footing, that maybe that's why it has that feel. Like an OPB show or an old... Um, soap opera. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Having those like slow kind of uh, floaty camera movements. Yeah. Yeah. Another piece of evidence in my I think this was an episode filmed very early on mystery is that the makeup looks as unrefined as the first few episodes. So just my theory. Enough about the sequencing. We cut to the entrance of the house, and this is really where you notice the difference in directing. Paul not only starts the girls way far back from the front door than what we ever see, and the cameras are basically an inch from their face. We are really tight in their shots. It's a surveillance angle. I yeah. think it's like, a, oh, is it for, is it visual foreshadowing of their coming paranoia about oh. their own security? Paul Bogart is thinking about it. And why are the ladies walking up to the front door? Because they have just excitedly arrived home from a Madonna concert. 
This is just another little detail that shows how badass these ladies are. It's 1985. Madonna is taking over the world with the Virgin Tour. Blanche, Rose, Dorothy, and Sophia are not dressed to look like Madonna or even really dressed up to go out to a concert. They're dressed in their everyday middle-aged JCPenney's women's department outfits, and they had a blast not giving a single damn about what the screaming teens in the audience thought about them. We have a little bit of a real-life whoopsie when it comes to Madonna's tour schedule. Surprisingly, she did not go to Miami for her Virgin tour, so the ladies are actually pulling an all-nighter, coming off of a three-hour drive from either Tampa or Orlando. But no matter, they are pumped from seeing the Beastie Boys open for Madonna, a young lady whose first tour earned her $12 million in today's dollars. While Rose muses that the name Madonna doesn't suit her, maybe she thinks she looks more like a Susie, or maybe she means that since Madonna was known, especially in the 80s, as being more of a Jezebel than a respected Italian virgin, morally pure or chaste woman, the definition of Madonna. Hey Alicia, Coco here. <laughs> uh, just speaking of Madonna, I would like to recommend a film that I watched recently called Body of Evidence, filmed in <laughs> Portland where we reside. Are you really recommending it, though? <laughs> yeah. I had not seen it. You introduced me to it. That is quite the film. Yes. Starring Madonna and Willem Dafoe. It is one of the worst movies ever. And it's not just like, oh, Madonna's in it and she can't act. Dollar. It is a horrible movie. Yeah. The, from the writing to the lighting. Ooh. Terrible. Dollar Tree. Basic instinct. Yes. Ooh. Oh, excuse you, chair. She's naked a lot. They have weird Madonna Willem Dafoe sex. Yeah, imagine those two. <sighs> That's what it's like. That's what it feels like. Yeah, yeah. just <laughs> in this moment. Okay, if you can close your eyes and breathe. Now picture Madonna and Willem Dafoe having very naked very long scene sex. I want Willem Dafoe in the streets and Madonna in the sheets. <laughs> that feeling you have in that feeling you have in your stomach thinking about Willem Dafoe and Madonna having sex, that's the feeling that you have the whole time watching the movie. Yeah, the Green Goblin himself. <laughs> so if that's a vibe that you're looking for, check out Body of Evidence. As the women enter their home, they're quick to see that everything is in disarray. Pictures are crooked, chairs are on their sides, cushions are strewn about. In the immediate panic, Blanche is sensible, pointing out that the burglars might still be in the house, so they should be quiet or, you know, leave the house and go use a friend's phone to maybe call for help? Just a thought. Dorothy is using my favorite coping skill, humor, while Sophia is taking it all in and Rose is clearly very fearful. Dorothy sees that their side door or back door, you know, that one door in that little area of the house, it's never used. It has a fireplace and those big back windows. It's like half lanai, half reading nook. And when it comes to the show, it's really only used, I think, three times for the Mr. Yakimoto scene with Sophia, when Sophia meets Meryl, and of course, this robbery. Once Dorothy sees the open door, she starts to make her way to it to get it shut. Not only does this give us an iconic scene from the opening credits, it takes me back to every time I've ever been to a haunted house with my friends. I always end up having to be the Dorothy while my friends hold onto my arms and scream. I'm curious which one you are in the scenario. Coco, what are you in the scenario? In a haunted house, I can't go first. 
and otherwise I'm fine. Okay. And, and I'm, if I'm first, I'm, I'm not dying. I just am scared. Not pleased. I'm not pleased. Yeah, I don't want to be. But you come home, the house has been burgled. Are you Dorothy where you're like leading the charge or are you Sophia where you're like whatever? Rose is terrified. Blanche is kind of in the middle of all of them. I think that I would probably be in the middle. I definitely would. I'd want to go inside, but I, I definitely wouldn't. And I would ensure that no one with me did. I'm speaking to someone very specifically right now. <laughs> are you speaking to me because yes. I would go in? <laughs> yes. Yes. And you'd probably also do what Dorothy does, which is probably what you're going to say right now. Mm-hmm. Once the door is closed and the girls are feeling more confident that the burglars are gone, Dorothy breaks out her Dirty Harry speech, which brings us to the Mandela effect. The Mandela effect is when large groups of people misremember the same thing in the same way. This phenomenon actually started with the former South African president, Nelson Mandela. Through multiple years and multiple reports, it was thought he had actually died in prison when he had not. Some Mandela effects come down just to spelling, like Berenstain Bears, The Flintstones, or Looney Tunes, or another famous movie Mandela effect from Star Wars. Darth Vader doesn't actually say, Luke, I am your father. He actually says, no, I am your father. Dirty Harry is famous not only as a Clint Eastwood movie from 1972, but for its Mandela effect. In the beginning of the film, Dirty Harry, a cop, chases down a bad guy and holds his gun to him, asking if he feels lucky. The whole quote actually goes like this. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth, in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Whereas Dorothy says, this is a 375 Magnum, one of the most powerful handguns in the world. It could blow your head off. The only problem is I don't remember if I shot four rounds or five. So you have to ask yourself, do you feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Sure, they tightened it up and probably didn't want it to be exact, but it's a prime example of the do you versus the do I feel lucky, which is what most people say when they're using that quote. Sophia follows it up with a quote from the 1983 Dirty Harry sequel, Sudden Impact, saying, Go ahead, make her day. In this case, it's Stop or My Daughter Will Shoot, perhaps the inspiration for the 1992 film Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, in which Sophia plays the titular mom, and we talked about it a few episodes ago. And I have even more fun facts about Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Arnold Schwarzenegger started a rumor that he was interested in playing the lead. However, that rumor was actually a trap because he had read the script and saw how bad it was. He only said he was interested basically to trick Sylvester Stallone into wanting the part. It made decent money, about $70 million worldwide, but it isn't exactly a beloved classic. It only has a 7% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, that's probably the last time I'll talk about Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, but no promises. Sylvester Stallone seems easy to trick. Yeah, I think that whole group may be. And also, like, what a fun prank. You're all friends and action stars. You're going to work together in the future on Expendables and all that. And with your jo your job is like the coolest job in the world, and you can kind of dick around and trick someone to starring in a movie because you think it's going to be bad. It's one hand like, you guys, you have too much access to good things or something. And then on the other, it's like, that's pretty great. <laughs>
Yeah, as a prank, I'm going to ruin your career. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. It's like, you guys maybe need a hobby? I don't know. Sophia is over the drama of the break-in, and she makes her way to her bedroom. While the girls try to stop her, she reminds them that she's in her 80s and everything is dangerous. Inspired by Sophia's bravery, Dorothy follows. Blanche goes back to the front door to hug her enormous and decorative Chinese vase. In my searching, it looks like these vases aren't exactly bank breakers. They only cost around a couple hundred bucks to maybe a thousand dollars. But we're living in Internet times. Maybe she ordered it from China directly or she got it at a fancy store. Maybe she even went to China on vacation, fell in love with it and had it shipped home. If anyone knows what Blanche's vase would have actually cost her back then, I would love to know. After hugging the porcelain vase, she makes her way to the kitchen. Rose starts to panic as she'll be left alone in the living room, and she's clearly in crisis mode. She starts talking herself down while backing towards the hallway, assuring herself that she's okay. That is until she starts talking herself into what could have happened. What if they had been home? As she continues backing up while getting worked up, Dorothy comes up behind her, accidentally scaring the crap out of her. With 911 starting in the 1960s, it's always struck me as odd that there weren't cries for anyone to call the second they got home. No matter, Dorothy says she called the police while she was taking inventory of her room. That's where she found that they had stolen her stole. While today the cost is much lower, only about $100 or so for an old mink stole, a new one will run you close to $2,000. But more importantly, fur is totally out of fashion. Thanks to technology and education, the horrific process of how pelts, furs, stoles, and any other fur product are created is known by most people, making fur not only unfashionable but barbaric in most opinions. But that wasn't the case in 1985. By then, the fur market was coming back and becoming even more accessible for all price points. Edward Keeney, a fur industry analyst, said of the 1985 fur market increase, wearing a farm-bred fur has become as socially innocuous as eating a hamburger at McDonald's. And I will give a shout out to Saks, which just announced that it will stop selling fur in their stores by the end of 2022. While Rose comforts Dorothy over the loss of the only present Stan ever gave her that didn't need an extension cord, Blanche slowly appears from the kitchen covered in flour. Dorothy recovers quickly from her own loss to joke that although Blanche's jewels may be gone, they didn't get her cocaine, referencing the white powder that she's covered in. Which is probably a reference to the famous scene in Scarface in which Al Pacino's character slams his face into a mountain of cocaine and comes up looking like, well, Blanche. Rose is shocked to learn of Blanche's drug habit before Blanche clears up that she's covered in the flower that she had hidden her jewels in. Dorothy is disappointed she would hide them there as it is a common hiding spot for expensive things, which I literally had never heard of before this episode. Growing up, my family had an emptied and washed pint container of ice cream that we would use for things like airline tickets, concert tickets, cash, anything of importance like that. Luckily, we never experienced a break-in to know if that was actually a good plan or not. Coco, did your family have like a secret hiding spot for important things like that? Not that I recall. My mom had a, still has one of those little fireproof safes. Oh yeah, like my parents always the had the birth, the birth certificates, the passports. Uh, yeah, put the social security card in there. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, a couple of photos. Yeah, uh, but that's it. That's but nothing. No, like no unconventional sneaky no, place. Yeah, nothing, nothing in the freezer. Because I, I think that I'd be. As I would be afraid that it would get thrown out or something. I wouldn't trust it somehow. Oh, yeah, that's that's somehow. a fair concern. 
While Blanche is devastated over the loss of her mama's jewels, Rose muses that the robbers were probably just looking for drugs, that theory coming from the fact that we learn later in the series just how much of a fan she is of Miami Vice. Maybe Rose watches too much of it, hence her fear of drugs and robbers. Dorothy shuts that theory down quickly with a reminder that the only drugs they have are for tummy aches and hormone treatments. Sophia finally comes out of her bedroom to inform the girls she has been robbed of every earthly possession, even her girdle. Luckily, she's insured so she can replace the wardrobe she hated with a new one, except it only takes Dorothy about a second to figure out Sophia just hid them so that they'd have to go shopping. An A-plus for effort, Sophia. Rose starts rambling about the fact that this happened to them because there aren't any men in the house, that when she had Charlie, she was never robbed and she wasn't scared, and not even once murdered. Blanche chimes in from the backdoor fireplace land of the house with the reasoning being karma, that one of the girls must have put out negative energy to cause this to have happened. Sophia is over it and heads to bed. Dorothy, per usual, is the only realist in the group, and she lays the smackdown on their ridiculous theories. They were robbed. Period. Someone saw the opportunity of a door that they could get in through, and due to high unemployment, more people are desperate. Dorothy was referring to the national average being 7% unemployment in 1985, down from 10% just two years earlier, whereas Rose was referring to the household when she pointed out, none of us are unemployed except your mother. For more on the connection between unemployment, politics, and crime, you'll have to tune in to my other show, Murder in the Rain. Dorothy goes to bed. Blanche goes full Southern. She will seek justice. She will have a hanging. But first, a whipping, because no one takes her mama's jewels and gets away with it. Rose is left alone to ponder as we end the night, and we transition to the next scene, which is the next night? I guess the security sales guy was only available in the evening, or maybe it was winter and the sun was setting really early. While crime in Miami was high in the 80s, now the odds of being a victim of a burglary in Miami are only about 1 out of 27, not the 1 out of 3 the fear-mongering security guy is peddling. I mean, violent crime covers a lot of aspects, much more than just a home break-in. The salesman giving us his best Dwight Schrute before we even knew who he was is played by actor Christian Clemenson. Before landing on The Golden Girls, he had only been on TV one other time on the show Fame. He went on to work on projects like Family Ties, Matlock, The Big Lebowski, The West Wing, Grey's Anatomy, and even Law & Order SVU. As the schmucky salesman continues, Dorothy orders the basic package at $600, which is met with basically, well, that's fine if you want your friends to die, from the guy. Dorothy kicks the schmuck out with a threat of violence for using scare tactics. While the girls don't have a security system, they do have each other. Hi, it's Amy from Simply Safe. We make alarm systems that are DIY and you can install them in your own homes and they are made to keep you safe from everything from intruders to water damage, fire, CO2, everything that could kind of feel threatening or destructive in a home. What are some of the most common misconceptions that you've come across with people when it comes to either needing an alarm system or what's required of one? Well, you know, I think that as a woman, talking to all my women friends, we always talk about how there's one thing that we can all agree on, and it's how scary it is when something goes bump in the night, whatever that creak or crack is. And I think that we were kind of all raised with this fear that someone was going to break in in the middle of the night and get us. The fact of the matter is, 
that's pretty uncommon for you to be broken into in the middle of the night. Most burglars are coming, first of all, not for you, but for your stuff. And they are coming in, well, before COVID, we saw that they were coming in during the day, in and out, smash and grab when people aren't there. You know, what I like to say about alarm systems is that when you like survey your neighbors, I bet you have many more neighbors who have things like alarm systems that have actually had a break-in, but we're not really just in the business of protecting you from actual things that are happening. We're really good at that. We're also in the business of like helping you feel safe. And I think peace of mind is a huge piece. I also think people kind of misjudge what other people want. We all have our pride possessions and there are certain pieces of jewelry or whatever that you that you hold dear. But I, I think a lot of these smash and grabbers are coming in and looking for a laptop or an iPhone or an iPad or some other type of electronic that they can easily sell. I do believe in having my alarm system and I do believe it's there to protect me and my family. But I also know and appreciate, especially now during COVID when we're also like crazed, I appreciate that it can kind of empower me to feel strong and protected and like I can handle this. Something happens, I've planned for it. We have a contingency here. If that crack and creak and crack in, in the middle of the night is actually something really terrible, we got a plan. We're ready for this. Can you actually speak a little on what that means, like to have a contingency plan if something is actually happening, if that bump in the night is that rare occurrence? We all feel like it's like a human emotion. If you have a plan, you have some control over a situation. And we saw at Simply Safe that we actually were selling record amounts of units in the beginning of COVID. I wish dearly that I could tell you that Simply Safe could protect you from uh, the intrusion of illness, but we have not figured that out yet. However, I think that it just shows that people really, in times of distress, it's very comforting to feel like you have a plan and you have some sense of control over the situation. So with COVID, we saw people were like, I'm locked down. I'm going to redo my living room to be the most cozy place in the world. And I'll get new sheets and I'll you know, redo my bedroom. And I'm also going to get an alarm system. So we're locked down and I feel like control over what's happening. And that really speaks to the crisis of peace of mind that we were all dealing with. But it's there. It's there for you to know, I have a panic button. I have an alarm set. I have door sensors. I have all of these things covered. So if something bad happens, I have more tools to be able to deal with it. I'm a pet owner and that is a huge sigh of relief. In the end, it's not just the actual protection you have, but knowing that you've planned for every scenario, you have a way to protect yourself. I think it's the most empowering thing you can do. You could be 20, you could be 80, you could be 50, you could be a man, you could be a woman, you could be anything you want to be. We all need a sense of comfort, especially in dangerous, scary situations. Honestly, my dog passed away. And in the middle, and I'm kind of an anxious person. 
in the middle of the night when I would hear Cracker Creek, um, my husband travels a lot for work. I would hear that and I would kind of look down at the dog. And if the dog didn't lift up its head to look around and be like, oh, this is nothing. Well, when our dog passed away, I didn't have a barometer to look for. So I immediately got a home alarm system. And I can tell you that it took my anxiety and my angst down so much to realize, okay, that's something I don't have to, that's a burden I don't have to carry. I know that we have a plan. The girls all handle it differently in their own ways. And Rose specifically gets very anxious. What are some things that people do thinking that they are protecting themselves that maybe aren't doing that? You know, what we see is that a lot of people get systems because of a life event. So maybe something went wrong. Maybe that's the life event. But it's more often they move into an, a house, a new house. They get a new baby. They get a new puppy. We ha- it's, it's really funny. A lot of people say, um, we'll see on social, I don't need to simply say if I have a dog. And you know, the other 50% of the dog owners we see say, I got to simply safe to protect my dog. There's a lot of different things people do. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, some people arm themselves and not to get political, but that's one choice that you can make. I think that, you know, there's no wrong way to make yourself feel more secure, but there are certainly very safe ways to make yourself feel secure. Getting a dog that you can't handle that's a lifelong commitment, might not be the best idea. Uh, getting a, a firearm that you aren't trained to deal with, to, to be able to properly use, and probably not a great idea. There's really no way, I don't want to vilify anyone and say that they've done the wrong thing in protecting themselves because we all have to make our own decisions. But I will say, for me, when I'm looking at protecting myself, I'm looking at a way to safely protect me and those around me. Like in the episode, they're dealing with this guy who's getting paid off commission or it's his business or whatever it is that suddenly it goes from 600 to 10,000. You're not in control if you have someone at your home who is about to install like thousands of feet of wire into your walls and drilling in everything and making you, you know, feel like, that very fine line. Are you keeping people out? Are you keeping you in? Like, are you a prisoner in your home or is this making me more nervous? At the end of the day, if you don't want a home security system, that's fine. But it's really good to do things like lock your doors, lock your windows, make sure you lock your car doors, make sure that if you are traveling for a while, you're not leaving all your electronics in plain view through a window. Simple common sense can also help us out here. Like in this episode, I think that these women are looking for peace of mind more than they even need protection. And maintaining their independence too, I think. When Blanche comes home after the robbery has happened, she goes running to the freezer looking for her mother's jewels. And then she looks in the flower because apparently she put it there. And I was laughing because I remembered growing up, we always put our things in the freezer. We had a fake ice cream thing and like plane tickets, concert tickets and cash and that kind of thing. Is there anything like that where people are hiding it in weird spots? I don't have any research to point to anything new. I think anecdotally, I think a lot of people are buying safes right now and installing them in their homes because of the fear that COVID has given us all that 
Maybe you're not going to be able to get to your safety deposit box very easily. Maybe you're not, maybe you want to hold some more cash because it'll be harder to get to a bank. Of course, if you get a safe, you want to be, you want to do all the things that you're supposed to with a safe, like bolt it into the ground so someone can't just pick it up and leave it and take it, excuse me, or, you know, change the code from one, two, three, four to something. One, two, three, five, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, zero, zero, zero. Just mix it up. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, those types of common sense things. I am all for anything that makes people feel better and feel safer. Rose falls back on it having been better when she had a man around. Blanche starts to relate with Rose about her story of Charlie by sharing she always had George to wake up if there was a noise in the night. This, of course, turns into a story of her and George role-playing and then eventually making love. I love these moments with the girls, how each one can have such a different reaction, but none of them blame the other for that reaction. Rose is scared and feels more comfortable with a man. While Dorothy disagrees and points to facts showing Rose is wrong, she doesn't condemn her for having those feelings. The ladies head to the kitchen to get dinner when they hear a very poor quality recording of a dog barking. The girls all stop and remind Rose that she was the one that got a guard dog. Here we get a character whoopsie as Rose explains she doesn't like large dogs due to an incident with a cocker spaniel when she was three. However, as Betty's love for animals seeped into Rose's character, we see her with all sorts of animals, including large dogs, throughout the entire series. Hello, Dreyfus. Perhaps she sought help for her issue. Oh, and she maybe recovered. got some therapy and worked through her fear, yeah. much like the fear in this episode. Oh, you're very insightful today on Thank this Thank you. Maybe she learned some self-defense tactics to be able <laughs> Towards to- Towards dogs. Yeah, effectively vanquish a dog. Well, there you go. Or you know, any sort of you know smaller to mid-sized quadruped. Thank you. Dorothy goes to her room to call the kennel to come get the dog as Rose muses a slight- sort of an oh boy, about Jewish people having created jewelry because Jew is in the name and the jeweler she used to know back in St. Olaf was Jewish. And no, Rose, it doesn't. If you take the word jewelry way back, jewelry is from the Latin word jocal, which actually means plaything. Sophia then takes it upon herself to go into the kitchen. Again, we get really weird direction with the camera moving to follow Sophia, and it's from a strangely high angle, making her look even smaller. The acting here is over the top, as they assume from the poor recording of the dog barking that Sophia has been attacked, if not completely consumed. Rose and Blanche scream for Dorothy, who comes running out, yet none of them go into the kitchen to make sure she's okay. They just go straight into being sad about her being dead. Sophia then walks out eating something along the lines of the largest potato chip I've ever seen and talks about how much of a wuss the dog was. Dorothy's maw claws come out as she's so annoyed at Sophia's, what did I do? She rips the bag of snacks out of her hands. We cut to Blanche on the couch with Dorothy tending to her with a damp rag. Well, in theory, it's damp as the bowl Dorothy is dipping it in actually has no water in it. And when she wrings it out, nothing happens. Rose comes in in a tizzy, entering the house in such a frenzy she sets off the alarm they have purchased. Telling Dorothy she saw a strange man outside with a weapon, Dorothy points out she has mistaken the gardener for an attacker. A real Karen move by today's standards, but at least she didn't call the cops on him. Although, why was he out there at night? When Rose sees Blanche on the couch, she frantically approaches her. Blanche then explains that she had gone to the police station about her jewelry and she had borrowed Rose's hairspray because of the weather. 
It is a perfect girlfriend interaction. Yeah, I'll get to the drama of why I'm lying here, but first we'll have a little off-subject tangent. It's moments like this that really set the Golden Girls apart. Blanche went to the police station, and she, of course, started to flirt with an officer. When she went to use the hairspray to give herself a little mini primping, she ended up macing herself because it wasn't actually hairspray. It was a decoy mace bottle. The visual of the oh-so-refined and flirty Blanche making eyes with an officer and trying to up the ante by adding hairspray but then macing herself is so classic. We've all been there to some degree. Maybe flashed a smile and then found out we had something in our teeth or something embarrassing along those lines. It's funny having Blanche tell this story in full victim mode, something she referenced earlier when talking about the robbery happening because of karma. Projection? Blanche barely survived macing herself, not only struggling through breathing, but because the police thought she was on drugs. More specifically, they thought she was on angel dust. Angel dust, FYI, is a drug known as PCP, but officially known as phenylonxanhyxylpiperdine. I'm pretty sure is how you say it. It was first created in the 1920s as an anesthetic, but after seeing how people reacted, you know, violently, behaving the same as someone that just maced their own face, it became a Schedule II drug. While usage was big in the 70s, it had tapered off by the 80s. Dorothy calls Rose out on her paranoia and tells her she needs to get it together. Instead of hearing her friend's advice, though, Rose has come home with a gun. Before showing them the gun, she unloads her bag, which happens to be full of yarn, a lovely juxtaposition of the gun-toting, knitting Nana. Dorothy is anti-gun, while Blanche is not. Dorothy is especially concerned based off of how upset Rose was with the gardener. With those kind of fearful reactions, Rose could end up killing the wrong person. Dorothy was right to be worried, though. From 1979 to 1997, 30,000 Americans died from unintentional firearm injuries. Half of those victims were under 25 years of age, and 4,600 of which were less than 15 years old. It is proven that states with higher accessibility rates have an average of nine times higher rates of unintentional victims. Seeing how upset Rose was and the dramatic measures she's willing to take while in the heightened emotional state, Dorothy begs Rose to see a therapist. Again, a very weird choice by the director happens as Rose and Dorothy are talking and Sophia is standing behind them. Even though Dorothy is speaking to Rose, we get a zoom in on Sophia, so you kind of stop paying attention to the conversation as you watch Sophia suspiciously. She is again eating, which I think she does in almost every scene in this episode, when she quotes President Franklin Roosevelt's, You have nothing to fear but fear itself. But being Sophia, she needed to add a little spice, so she says, and the boogeyman. Because Sophia is not here to coddle you, Rose. Roosevelt's inauguration speech still resonates today, almost a hundred years later. The full quote is as follows. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. In every dark hour of our national life, a leadership of frankness and vigor has met with that understanding and support of the people themselves, which is essential to victory. And I am convinced that you will again give that support to leadership in these critical days. The next scene is again all four girls coming home, and we follow them up the entrance path. The security system is weirdly outside the front door, and they go inside talking about their visit with a psychiatrist, which wasn't groundbreaking per se, but to be open about it and recognize that you need help after a trauma like that was, especially group therapy. 
As they continue to debrief in the kitchen, Dorothy and Blanche share that they're feeling better having gone. Sophia is just relieved to be out of there because she not only felt the doctor blamed mothers for everything, she noticed and was uneasy with the fact that he had two dead fish in his tank. Rose had hoped going to talk to someone would have just immediately cured her, but she's still fearful and hopeless. Talking to a professional is hard to do and means you're going to go to places in your own history and thought patterns that you might not want to. It also takes time. If you're seeking therapy or other mental health services for something you're working on, just know you aren't going to feel cured overnight. You may never feel cured of anything, but you'll hopefully be given the tools to help you through it. Blanche, of course, has set up a date with a psychiatrist. Rose has now changed her schedule so that she's sleeping during the day and is awake at night. Obviously not sleeping at night because that is when the robbery happened. Blanche has taken note that at the end of the day, Rose makes a pot of coffee to get her through the night. Hopefully she's also remembered the effect of the Oreos from the last episode, and that'll really get her motor going. The next scene, it's nighttime, and again with the bad direction choices, we pan awkwardly across the room, making the show look like a 70s soap opera when we hear an unknown noise outside the front door. The noise gets closer and closer before the front door opens. The alarm goes off, and in the hallway we see a shadowed figure. As soon as the alarm goes, so does a gunshot from that figure. The lights come on and we see that the menacing sounds at the door were coming from Blanche and her date, assumed to be the psychiatrist, Lester. Rose was the shadow figure and her shot had luckily missed her friend and her friend's date, instead taking out the prized, adored Chinese vase. Rose makes the point that, hey, at least I shot the vase, the alternative was hitting your date, it's not comforting to Blanche, as she proclaims she wishes Rose had just shot Lester. Lester bounces, and Blanche calmly talks to Rose as if she hadn't just been an inch away from death mere seconds ago. Someday, I really hope to find a way to dismiss someone with, Go on home, you old fool! I mean, the balls of doing that. My roomie just almost shot you. You're scared, but I'm calling you a fool? Sophia is glad because she hated that cumbersome vase. Now, let's talk pajamas. Sophia is in a full-on Victorian-looking nightgown, long sleeves, lace collar, impossible to sleep in. Then we have Dorothy, who is already tall and not really curvy, or at least not dressed for it, and she's wearing what I can only describe as what I looked like as a child wearing my dad's shirt. It has no less than, I believe, 40 buttons going down the front, long sleeves, a length that helps no one, and a yellow hue that is nothing but upsetting. Between... Between the coffee and Oreos, gunshots and pajamas, how does anyone get good sleep around there? Blanche and Sophia are cleaning up the vase remains, Blanche giving directions for Sophia to collect all the pieces in hopes that she could glue them back together. Sophia verbally agrees to help while simultaneously hiding pieces of the vase in other pots. I wonder if those were ever discovered while watering. Having reached a point of almost killing a friend, Dorothy is at her wit's end with Rose's fearful behavior. During her Come to Jesus conversation, Rose gives a wonderful emotional performance dealing with the PTSD she's been struggling with since the robbery. Back again to the weird shots, we're now in a parking lot, again looking like a cereal or something, as Rose runs away from a man she hears walking towards her. As she stops to listen and probably tell herself, it's nothing, stop being so fearful, 
She realizes the steps are getting closer. She runs away, but you can hear a man's voice call out, Hey, lady! And Rose is soon caught by a man in a stairwell. The whole scene feels like something out of a thriller or an old-time monster movie. We're left hanging as to what happened to Rose, wondering if she's okay, especially with how hysterical she had been and how scary it is to have someone follow you in a parking garage. And before we learn of her fate, we're back to the house and on the lanai. Dorothy and Sophia are playing Scrabble when Sophia gets 69 points. Nice. With that score, Sophia is a self-proclaimed winner of the game. Dorothy disagrees. There is no way the word Sophia used is a real word. As one does during Scrabble, Dorothy says she's going to check the dictionary. Conveniently, the robbers had taken the dictionary, the same ones that stole Sophia's wardrobe. Hmm. I get giddy when this scene comes on. I just love how the writers teed up the joke. We can all relate to a that's-not-a-real-word argument during Scrabble. They wait so long to say the word... Dizdam, and before you can really process why it's funny, Dorothy asks her mom to use it in a sentence, which leads to one of my favorite quotes of Sophia's in the entire series. She takes a perfect amount of pause before saying, You're no good at Dizdam game, and walks away, leaving Dorothy to give us the opening credits knuckle bite of frustration. Sophia playing games reminds me so much of my own Grammy. She was from Lubbock, Texas, and loved games, a favorite being Yahtzee one I still adore and play to this day. But Grammy didn't always exactly follow the rules, especially as she got into her 80s. Sure, she dressed like Blanche, but when it came to remembering to write down a score for a terrible role or whose turn it was, if she didn't get the numbers she needed, or how often she really needed to get up to get something from the kitchen when she should have been rolling, it was very Sophia. And it was no wonder at the end of every game she would say, "'Y'all are done? Why, I still have four rolls to go!' Catching her cheating was like playing an advanced version of the game. As Dorothy is still reeling from the Scrabble game, Blanche comes in elated. They caught the robbers and they got their things back. Sadly, only the mink stole was recovered. Blanche, of course, sees it as her jewels being worth more. That's why they weren't. Rose appears and she is safe. She tells the girls about hearing the footsteps following her and how the man caught up with her and grabbed her. It was everything she had feared, and she need him in the junk, or the safe deposit box, as she says. While the girls are enthralled with her story, Rose shares that being able to protect herself in the moment showed her she shouldn't be scared at home, that she can control situations, which is what this is all about, control. You lose it when someone comes into your home, and you gain it back when you overcome your fears. Side note, I do not recommend trying to overcome your fears by kneeing dudes in the genitals. Only do that for safety purposes. When she got the guy down to the ground and felt her sense of security, she then learned that the man had followed her because she forgot to get her keys from the parking attendant. So hopefully the guy was cool and didn't go on to press charges. Although he really should have shouted out, I'm the parking attendant. I have your keys. Please take a note, gentlemen. You may walk past a lady, a person, a whomever, and while you think you might just be passing by and smiling, that person might be moving their keys into Wolverine position. If you're on an evening jog, guys, don't jog past or behind, well, anyone really, but especially women. I've been Rose, walking from my car to a venue. You hear those running feet, your heart races, you tense up so you could fight if they grab you. You know they won't, but you don't know that either. So you hold your breath. You start to take inventory by glancing back, thinking, okay, I can tell the cops he's in red shorts. And then 
they pass you. Your heart calms down, you go meet up with your friends, and you do it all over again when you go back to your car. So if every male presenting person could just always remember how they might be perceived, especially at night or in a place like a parking garage, that would be really cool. We get another opening credit scene on the lanai as Blanche comes back out after going to the kitchen to fetch celebratory champagne. In doing that, she found more than just the champagne. She found her jewels. They had been, of course, in the freezer, the place that when she first came out saying she has two hiding places, the flower and the freezer, that's where it was. So she had just searched both of her hiding places from the start. Well, we probably wouldn't have had this problem. Dorothy points out that like, hey, you were kind of ready to have those guys get the death penalty because it was you. But now that you're not the victim, you're like, whatever. Blanche reacts to Dorothy calling her out by reminding her that she was a victim, too, that they had taken her special stole and they didn't make it anymore because, you know, no one wears them. And Dorothy, well, she's had it. Isn't it interesting how Blanche is the one feeling like the robbery is karmic retribution, but she's also the one that wants the robbers dead, didn't check where her things were hidden, and they hadn't actually stolen anything from her. So it's kind of an interesting look at the karmic ideas that she had and what she, the energy she was putting out kind of throughout the entire episode. Before we go, have you ever experienced a break-in, burglary, crime of some sort like that? I have been a witness to a robbery. Ooh. So I'm very lucky and very grateful that my home, knock on wood, has always been safe. We've had moments where people came over or were going to stay the night. <laughs> my Uncle Steve, who is like six foot five, he this was years ago, like 30 years ago. He had told my dad the wrong time that his flight was coming in and he was going to stay with us, but he was just going to take a cab. And, you know, so he's only in his early 30s at the time. And my dad forgot the time or it was mixed up, whatever. And we hear the front door open. I heard it because of where my room was. And I ran to my parents' room and I said, someone's coming in the door. And my dad had a BB gun, but it was the 80s. So it kind of it looked like a real gun. And I just remember all three of us going in the hall because, of course, I was <laughs> all up in it. And we went down the hall and my dad had it out and yelled out and Steve turned on the light. And thank goodness it wasn't a real gun. And thank goodness it wasn't uh, didn't go any further than that. But that was very scary because we all thought that that was happening. And the other one was the robbery at my preschool. So I was probably four or so. And it's off a of main road but kind of tucked back. And also it's a school, so you would think it'd be safe. And I was playing on a structure on the inside and this kid walked in, you know, 20 or something. I was only four, so not exactly good at telling ages. And he went to the front desk where the ladies working were and I saw him take a gun out, but I didn't know what that was. You know, I wasn't watching violent things. My parents weren't gun people. So I was like, I know that that's a gun, but it didn't feel inherently scary. And the lady reached down and gave him her purse. And I thought, oh, that must be her son or she must know him. That's all I could think was like, oh, she, they know each other. That's why he's taking her purse. Um, and I don't know if he was ever caught or anything, but he took the purses and ran out the door. And then all the parents were pretty upset and worried. It's a weird choice for a robbery isn't it though yeah you'd think that's all you're gonna get if you're gonna go as an armed robber 
You're like, this is it. I'm taking my gun and I'm stealing something. Wouldn't you go to like a 7-Eleven with cash or a dispensary with, well, I mean, not back then, but somewhere where you're going to get. Not to encourage people, but I would probably <laughs> Pulp Fiction style do a diner or restaurant a diner, or something. I mean, there yeah. are, yeah, it really yeah. is so many other places <laughs> than like, here's a place with four older ladies and all they have is their purse. And pictures of their grandkids. Yeah. What about you? Have you ever witnessed or been a victim of a break-in or a robbery? I've had my car broken into multiple times living in Portland. The neighborhood I was in is like notorious for that. Uh, so that that's it though. Just, you know, four or five times <laughs> smashing the window. It got After the third one, I think, I uh, I just didn't replace the window. Yeah. And I just had a piece of cardboard in it for a few years and that that got punched into a couple times. Of and, course. Or just like in the rain, it would, it would rain and it would get wet and people would just finger open the poke a little finger hole in the in the cardboard and look around. It was awful. Did you have anything those first few times? Did you have anything major stolen? The only thing that was ever stolen from me was a jacket, a shell, the cheapest possible <laughs> thing, which they probably needed, and a box for a small table fan. <laughs> Just the box. Yeah. How interesting. Yep. Well, they call it smash and grab out there in those parts, so they probably just smashed and grabbed. Yeah. I did have a radio stolen, but they didn't smash the window, luckily. And it was uh, the morning of my birthday. I went out to go do something, and luckily I'd let my, left my car door unlocked. What age are you? This was my 20th birthday, I believe. Oh. And so I walked out, and they didn't break anything, but they took the radio, so I went and got a new radio. And that was like, man, that sucks. But... Was, it, was it a cooler stereo, though? Oh, yeah, because now it came with the – do you remember the old school? It had the button and the face would pop off. Uh, absolutely. And you I could did. have the container where you could store it somewhere, and it's like I always just left it on. I'm like, that's stupid. <laughs> or I would – well, I would take it off. I'm going to lose that. I would take it off and put it in the glove box. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone did that. Yeah. So it was like, uh, okay. Yeah. But... If, I think if you – yeah, if you saw anyone walking around with their stereo face, like, in their front pocket, you'd be like, <laughs> right. what a – Dork. They come to dinner, set it down. Sorry, uh, guys. Just got to keep my stereo safe. <laughs> it's a Kenwood. <laughs> it's a five-disc changer. It has so... red lights and blinkies. <laughs> uh, anything else before I dive into the last paragraph? Did you have any other? I thought that maybe a young Bradley Pitt watched Sophia in in these episodes or this episode where she's eating all the time and thought, that's, that's going to be look. my thing. Yeah. He's like, throughout my career, I will only be chewing <laughs> I mean, and not the scenery. Really, if you if if someone did the math of amount of screen time Sophia is on and amount of eating she does, it would be in Brad Pitt numbers. I mean, even in these first eight episodes, I want to say at least half of them she is eating. She's Well, she's a snacker. She's a big snacker. Which is very much a grandparent thing. Yeah. Once you're in your 80s, no big meals. Just little pieces little of cheese. And huge a potato chips. We never learned the fate of the robbers. Had they been creating a crime wave in the neighborhood? Were they part of a major ring or just some troublemaking kids? What we do know is everyone responds differently to crisis. Flight, fight, freeze, or fawn. You have no idea how you'll respond until you are in the situation. And for the most part, you can't help how you respond. As we saw in today's episode, when a traumatic event happens, it's not important to manage how other people are affected by it. What matters is meeting them where they are and supporting them. Dorothy doesn't say Rose was stupid for being scared. She was worried for her because of her fear and actions. Rose isn't any more weak than Sophia just because she doesn't make jokes about a serious situation. 
It's that when the shiz goes down, you know your friends have your back and will do what it takes to make sure you're taking care of yourself to get back to the healthy version of yourself, not the fixed version. Join us next week when we'll visit the episode Blanche and the Younger Man. We'll explore workout fads, elder care, find out if Blanche's vase makes a recovery, and talk with Dr. Kelly Yoakum about dating at an older age and the fun of dating younger men. As always, thank you so much for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Golden goodies. If you are looking for one-of-a-kind art pieces with the girls, then look no further than Teresa Christensen Art. Not only does she have panels with the ladies over a banana leaf background, there's even a set of monstrified ladies. In addition to the girls, you'll find pieces from all realms of pop culture, from Pee Wee to Twin Peaks, Dolly Parton to Amy Winehouse. So bring some exciting new art into your life and goldenfy your walls by visiting TeresaChristensenArt.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-S-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N-S-E-N-Art.com. Chairs are on their sides. Cushions are strewn about. Strewn about? Chairs are on their sides. Cushions are strewn... Oh my God, why can't I say strewn? Arnold Schwarzenegger was actually... Mm-mm. While Dorothy confronts... Nope. <laughs> While Dorothy confronts, it's Rose Comforts Dorothy. Idiot. Tony Montana! He's, he kind of screams it. Did your family have a hiding spot? I don't think so, but only because I was young. I didn't have anything really to do with the finances. <laughs> so I didn't know where there was hiding stuff. <laughs> when um <laughs> None of that is usable. <laughs> no. Coco. <laughs> I'm sorry. You just threw me off. I didn't know what to say. Dorothy and Sophia are playing sca- scabble. Dorothy no. and <laughs> Yeah, gross. <laughs> we don't use letters, we use our own scabs. Yeah, it's too bad we missed out on the Angel Dust days. I don't know why I was just going to blurt out, my grandma used to drink a lot of Kern's nectar. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.